0: well good morning Redemption Arcadia so thankful that you are here today Uh, you all have been through a lot since the last time we were able to gather on a Sunday morning and so I'm just grateful that we get to do this that we get to be in the same room together and to worship the Lord together learn from the word Uh, I know that your range of experiences has been broad but we're very thankful that you're here today uh, one of the things that we actually said on Thursday night uh, during that gathering was that um, when we worship, we're worshiping to the Lord, there's a, a vertical component to it, but there also is a horizontal component to it as well that we that we sing also the good news to each other. And so we picked some songs today that that hopefully will do both, that it will allow for us to worship to the Lord, but will allow for us to also encourage one another with the good news. So would you stand and uh, we'll worship together the Lord.
1: see that you are good. I will taste and see that you are good. You're good to me. Sing that again. Yes, I will taste and see that you are good.
2: Eu tô upon you and a thousand generations in your family in your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations in your family in your children and their children and their children may his presence go before behind you and beside you.
0: So, Lord God, we thank you that your presence is here. It goes before us and behind us and beside us and in us. God, we thank you and praise you that you are there with us in the weeping and in the rejoicing that you're there with us in the good times and the difficult times. That, Lord, you do remain good. So, God, we do pray that we would taste and see that you are good today so grateful to be able to be here with you and here with each other. Would you be glorified in this time? Would you grow us, Lord, according to your word and to your spirit? God, we pray that you would speak in and through Pastor Frank as he preaches and God, may all these things be done for our growth and for your glory. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping. Would you remain standing as we read the scripture together?
1: You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my
0: life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord.
3: All right, good morning, Arcadia, you may be seated. It is really wonderful to see your eyes again. I haven't seen your eyes well. Some of you, I get to see your faces too. That's a special bonus. If you are new here today, we're glad that you're here. Um, This is our first day regathering in uh, more than three months. And so um, that you found us, maybe you found us because we've been putting all of our, quote, services online and that's how you found us. Or maybe a friend invited you, but we especially want to welcome you. If you're wondering who I am, I'm, I'm Frank Switzer. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia and we are glad that you are here. The last four weeks, including today, we've been going through Psalm 23. We're going to conclude this study in Psalm 23 next week. and the following week, we're going to start a a, uh, six-week study in the book of 1 John. So that's kind of what we're doing going forward. And so I'm just going to dive in. Psalm 23 is a psalm of confidence written by King David. And the first four verses, which we are spending the first four weeks on, is all about how God is our shepherd. And then verses five and six, which will be next week, uh, we find out that God is not only our shepherd, but he's also our host. And there's actually a couple of different meanings for that word uh, host. And in verse one, we actually took a dive into uh, what the characteristics are of shepherd and sheeps. And we talked about that. And we talked about how it's good that God is actually our shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Second week, we talked about how well God leads us. And then the third week, the the specific fact that he leads us into paths of righteousness. Or another way of saying it is that he leads us into paths that are right for God. And if they're paths that are right for God, they're paths that are right for us. And today we look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that even though we encounter serious and dark valleys in our lives, God is with us and he comforts us. And we're going to take that verse and split it into Two parts. So we're going to look at it, part one, then part two, and then we're going to finish with a little passage from the New Testament. So part one is this. David writes, even though I walk, notice it's I, through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And here's a fact right out of the gate that we just need to come to grips with. We all walk through these valleys. No life is exempt from these valleys. There's the valleys of the shadow of death. There are valleys of tribulation, valleys of misery, valleys of suffering. Nobody is going to escape this hardship. These are challenges, these are trials that all of us are going to have to deal with. I will tell you, my 61 years of experience tells me, uh, I find it amazing how much time, effort, and money you and I put into trying to avoid any valley in our life. We just like to go from mountaintop to mountaintop. I need to tell you it can't be done. There is no way to avoid these valleys. And in fact, in attempting to avoid the valleys, we often create more valleys for us. And it's one of the things that our wealthy and comfortable world has afforded us. And what it's afforded us is worry and anxiety about losing our wealthy and comfortable world. The fact that we've created it has also created anxiety for us. It's the progress paradox. Our experience is not much like not like much of the rest of the world. Most people we wake up each day with one goal, and that is to survive another day. Most of us wake up trying to figure out how to how to accumulate more and how to keep what we've already accumulated. And before I lose you on this point, just let me say this is not a message about how we're. We're all too privileged and how we're all called to be giving away all of our money. That's not it. But rather, it is a message that reminds us that no matter what we do, the things of this world cannot ultimately protect us from nor comfort us in these valleys that we will experience. The things of this world were not designed to protect us from nor even comfort us in these valleys that we will experience in our lives. These shadows of death. So this message is really about how much we need God no matter what and how much he delights to comfort us. That's his delight. How he delights to ease our burdens of fear and sin. He delights to give us rest. Shalom. He delights to be with us. And so we go through the valley When we do that, we can count on him. He's with us. He's with us in the valleys of relational distress, and financial distress, and health distress, the valleys of spiritual distress, which we all go through. And we need to remember, the problem is not God. David writes, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he is the one who has broken away from God, and, and it is the result of his sin or somebody else's sin against him. It's never God's fault that we're in these valleys. He says, even though I walk through, it, me, but you're with me. Generally, historically, our problem is that when we enter these various valleys of our lives, we are prone to simply blame, accuse, and withdraw from God when these valleys come. That's what we do. We withdraw and blame, but he stays. We just don't realize it. We pout, but he pursues. And though we have a mountain to climb, and God certainly has the power to remove any mountain that's before us, his MO, the the vast majority of the time, what he does is he doesn't remove the mountain, but he promises to be with us as we go up that mountain. Because that's the discipline, that's the perseverance and the patience and the endurance that he wants us to learn. Those things are not spiritual gifts. We need to learn those things. Like contentment is not a spiritual gift. Paul says we must learn those. We hate the mountains. We hate it. We hate discipline. Even the author of Hebrews even says, you know, we really don't like the discipline. We, no one likes going through the discipline, but it produces something good. We hate the mountains, but ultimately those mountains are going to be good for us. And he's there with us in those mountains. And, and this is a huge deal too. Not only are there these valleys, but one of the most powerful ways that God is with us through these valleys is through our faith community. I'm going to dwell here a minute because this is so important. Our faith community is one of the ways that God is present with us in these valleys. When we have to start at the bottom and scale these mountains, when everything seems hopeless and lost and helpless, that's when the faith community becomes the most important. But here's the key. Do not wait to try to be connected into a faith community until you enter your valley. That's the biggest mistake you can make, is wait for the valley and then try to connect. It's so much better to already be connected, so much better to already be in community. One author, Dane Ortland, writes this. Making progress is a matter of the slow accumulation of small achievements and less a single moment of dramatic victory when all the odds are stacked against you. Well, building community is a slow accumulation of small achievements achievements and it's way better than expecting community to somehow magically appear to help you when these trials come community is so important real life community and i know that many of us think "Well, i've got digital platforms and social media and all that i've got community no you really don't i was reminded of this uh, recently um, we're very involved with Alongside Ministries. It's a, it's a ministry that ministers to ex-convicts. They come right out of prison and, and start living in this, what they call this Discipleship Training Center. There's about 20 of them that live there. And, and we go in on Wednesday nights and provide a meal and do a Bible study, and we've been able to re-engage recently with the shelter in place uh, being loosened up a little bit. And I remember the first time I was back there on a Wednesday night, what it was like to actually be in a person-to-person, this is metaphorically speaking, flesh-on-flesh community and how important it was to actually be with people in their presence and how encouraging that is and how, how it lifts you up and builds you up in, no, in a way that no relationship through a screen can do it. And, and I was... Reminded as we sang together, and there's only 20 of us in there, but we're singing together, how wonderful that was. And now, when we studied scripture together, there was give and take, and, and people were participating, and, and how wonderful that really was. And you didn't have to worry about a mute button or the background noise, or if you could even get a word in edgewise, because there's always that person on Zoom that talks more than everybody else. Amen. So it was was absolutely wonderful. Here's the best counsel I can give you. Have your community in place because the valley is coming. It's just coming. I haven't had any valleys yet. That's it. (laughs) Now you're going to have your valley. You said it out loud. You thought it. Now you're going to have it. It's coming. But also, the truth is, we need God in the mountaintops as well because that's often when we leave God behind or at least try to. Often our greatest tests are not necessarily in the valleys, but in the mountaintops. I've run into that a lot. For so many of us, our successes eventually become our deepest valleys because we also don't have the discipline to respond properly when we win. It's just so common that when we win, to start putting stock in us, to think that we are all that, that we're special, we're different, we're smart. What we don't understand and we need help with this is that our ego is the enemy and our pride is our downfall and our arrogance slays us. So in the valleys we blame God and we withdraw, but when we're on the mountaintops we ignore God and try to leave him behind. But he promises to be with us. So we can live without fear manipulating us. We know there's evil out there, but he says because I'm with you, you have no fear now. The most common Prohibition by Jesus in the New Testament is do not be afraid. 500 times in the Gospels he says that. He says, for I am with you. But we need to understand that it's not just God's presence. It's not just this passive presence that he's sort of there watching. It's an active presence because his presence also gives us his loving discipline and guidance. He is a God who guides us and disciplines us as well. And here we find that in the rest of of verse 4. It's part 2. He says, for you are with me. Your staff and your rod, they comfort me. And what's what's the rod and staff? Here's a picture. So there's the staff, long, a little bit narrower, wieldly, with a crook at the end, and there's a rod, shorter, and much more powerful. Look at those pictures. Now, why would these things comfort us? What is David saying here? Well, David was a shepherd. And he knew the tools of his trade. And these are two of the most important tools that he had as a shepherd. And he uses them, the staff and the rod, to tell us how much God loves us and cares for us. So let's talk about the staff. The staff is for guidance and salvation. Like I said, the staff is long and wieldly with a large crook at the end. And and the staff was used to push the sheep in the right direction, not beat them, but to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing in the right direction, to keep them on the right path, to keep them away from danger and foolish exploits. Anybody in this room ever gone off on a foolish exploit? Uh, You could think of the staff as a steering wheel on a car. The problem of course, is that we all want the steering wheel We are all backseat drivers when it comes to God. No matter how uncomfortable it might make us feel, we are always better off with God at the wheel, with his hands on the steering wheel. And it's what gives David comfort. He says, this is part of what comforts me. And also the crook there. The crook on the end of the staff is actually the salvation part. There's the guidance part, and then that crook is specifically the salvation part. Sheep often found a way to go off on their own, and because they weren't especially bright, they would often end up stuck somewhere in some brush, completely helpless, and they wouldn't be able to extricate themselves. They'd get in, but they couldn't get anybody ever get into something and they can't seem to get you can't seem to get out? Okay. Well, the crook was used to pull the sheep out of the thick, ensnaring brush when they wandered off and got stuck, because if they were just left there. They would die. It's the picture of the parable of the one lost sheep. The 99 are safe, but the one goes off and gets ensnared somewhere. And Jesus goes to find that one sheep who is ensnared somewhere and needs help getting pulled out. And remember, if you've ever been stuck in something that has lots lots of thorns and and claws and everything, you know, when you get pulled out, it's not very pleasant. You need to get pulled out or you're going to die. But that process is not very pleasant. Because God loves us, he's willing to go through the unpleasant sometime part of saving us. And that should comfort us. How often do we get stuck in some ensnaring brush in our lives? And then there's the rod. The rod, as you see, is shorter and more powerful than the staff and was specifically designed and used for protection against predators. And as such, the rod is a symbol of love. You and I know instinctively we protect that which we love. So the rod is a symbol of love. And again, there's great comfort, David says, knowing of God's protection. Comfort. You know, Jesus wants his disciples to be comforted. This is actually a big deal to him. and And this verse in Psalm 23 always reminds me of a little short passage in Matthew chapter 11. You can turn there if you like. I don't know. Anybody get the sense we might be going there? I love this little passage in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Let me read it to you. We'll have it up on the screen as well. Jesus spoke a lot in the book of Matthew. It's a great place to find the words of Jesus. Lots of red ink in Matthew. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is really interesting. Somebody pointed this out to me recently. Never thought about this. It's the only place in all four Gospels, 89 chapters of the Bible the only place where Jesus tells us about his heart now he shows us his heart all through the gospels this is the only place he actually talks about it and tells us about it and what is what is how does he describe he uses two words gentle and lowly it's not judgmental and demanding Not sophisticated and proud, gentle and lowly. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want to unpack a number of these words, what Jesus is trying to say to us in this tiny little passage here. You look at that word labor. Come to me, all of you who labor. That word means depleted and weary from work. And and it means weary from whatever work it is that's depleting you, It can be physical work, it can be emotional work, it can be spiritual work. It doesn't matter. Many of us, I don't don't do physical labor, yet at the end of the day, I'm usually really fatigued because of the emotional labor that I do and the spiritual labor I do. It's, It's the same. We labor from these things. He calls out to those who are exhausted. And then heavy laden, he says, come to me those of you who labor and are heavy laden. That means weighed down or unrealistically overburdened with a load. Those two words, those two terms, uh, labor and heavy laden, they describe all of us. They describe all of us. They, they, and they describe anyone who is looking for a worldview or a life principle that works for them, that can sort of get them out of this this just Im- incredibly stressful thing called Life. Those who labor and are heavy laden, if we come to Jesus and take his yoke, we're going to find rest. He says, Here's where you'll find rest. And really, that word means shalom, the ancient Hebrew word shalom, and we'll find that for our souls. He says, I'm going to refresh you if you come to me, over and over and over again. You will experience shalom for the first time ever. And that word shalom, very important to understand this, this word, this principle of shalom. It means harmony, it means rightness, it means, you could say it this way, that sense of actually being in your lane, being in your wheelhouse. Here you go, this is is where we misunderstand shalom so often. Shalom is not inactivity. Shalom is not a day off. Shalom is not lying on the couch. It is, for the lack of a better way of saying it, and because I'm a child of the 60s, it is finding your groove. And where we find that shalom is in Jesus' yoke. Now, let me show you what a yoke is in his context. Put this yoke upon... Anybody want to volunteer to have this put on you? Doesn't that look comfortable and wonderful? You know, that's an ancient yoke. Now, why would Jesus use this burdensome, harsh picture of what he's going to fasten to us who come to him And and then tells us, that's going to provide you peace. Well, there's an explanation for it in his context. A yoke, a real yoke, like that one up there, was how farmers would tie beasts of burden together so that they were forced to work hard and without any independence. You'd you'd tie ox together, oxen together. And they, they were... They were burdened by this because they were beasts of burden and then they would work and plow and there was no individualism. But Jesus says his yoke is easy and it will not be a burden. In one author's words, he says uh, it's as though Jesus' yoke is a non-yoke. He talks about a yoke, but it's really a non-yoke. Here's why. Jesus was a rabbi and yes, he was a different kind of rabbi as we know. But in his context, he was just one of many rabbis. He was a teacher and a discipler. And in their context, each rabbi had his own teaching, his own curriculum, and his own interpretation of the law. And to be a part of that rabbi's group, if you made it up through the levels and were part of a rabbi's group, you had to take on his teaching for yourself, all of it. You couldn't dissent from any of his yoke. You had to take the entire yoke of that rabbi on you because his teaching, his curriculum, his interpretation of the law was known as his yoke. So you had to take that yoke upon you. And the teaching of most rabbis in that day was keep this law, keep that law, keep the law, keep all the laws. Don't travel on the Sabbath. Don't mix linen and wool. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't touch a corpse or anyone who is deceased. Don't be a Los Angeles Lakers fan. That's in there. It's in the original language. Trust me on that. But here is Jesus' yoke. Repent and believe in me, and you will have life. That's it. That's his yoke. Repent and believe in me, you will have life. Jesus is sufficient. His yoke is something that is finished at the cross, that he accomplished for us, and gives us out of his love, grace, and mercy to us as a gift, if we would come to him. And, And... And you look at that yoke and compare it to all the other yokes, and certainly it is easy and not burdensome. And remember, he says, come to me, those who are weary and burdened, not just from life itself, but you're coming to me from those harsh and impossible-to-keep yokes. You need to shed those other yokes, whatever they are, whether it's the yoke of another rabbi or today, the yoke of our culture and our cultural mandates and the cultural gurus and whoever it is that you're following here. And by the way, every biblical commentator reminds us that this yoke is not for everybody or just anyone. It's for those who repent and come to Jesus and believe in him. That's the gospel. You and I must first turn to Jesus, repent, and believe. And then Jesus says, learn from me. Now, this learning is going to be new and challenging, and here's why. All of us, whether it was the law-bound people in the first century and us today, whatever yokes that we've tied ourselves to today, to learn Jesus' way of grace and love and mercy, we must also unlearn all of these other burdensome yokes that we've subjected ourselves to. It's not just enough to learn his new yoke that's important, but we're going to have to also untie ourselves from these old yokes. The yokes of self-righteousness, the yokes of self- loathing. The yokes of impossible morality. The yokes of self-determination. The yokes of judgmentalism. And as we do that we begin to understand more and more about the yoke of love and the yoke of grace and mercy and joy. The way of the gospel. So his heart is gentle and lowly. That word gentle means a quiet meek spirit. He's not trigger happy his heart is lowly. That word lowly means humble, not haughty or proud. That's H-A-U-G-H-T-Y in case you're wondering about haughty. Here's a good word. Jesus is accessible. He's supreme and he's sufficient, but he's accessible. And that's why he's supreme and sufficient, because he is accessible and available. For all of Jesus's supremacy That's what he is, accessible and available. And and here you go, here you go. Jesus is never in a hurry. Have you noticed that? Jesus has never been in a hurry. That whole idea of God's speed, God's speed, hope you get there fast. Well, Jesus went no more than two and a half miles an hour at his fastest. Usually he was slower than that. God's speed is slow. It's patient. It's enduring. It's a journey. We're always in a hurry with Jesus, but he's never in a hurry. Again, uh, alongside this last Wednesday night at Alongside, we were there. And uh, the people who were there, the guys that are there living in this discipleship training center, um, they range in their time away from prison uh, on this particular Wednesday night, just last Wednesday night, from four days. One of the guys there had just gotten out four days earlier, all the way up to six months, which, which is when you graduate from Alongside ministry and they train you to get back out there into the world. But they had a guy there who had just gotten out four days earlier, and they have a tradition there at Alongside where if it's your first Wednesday night meal in Bible study, every other person in the room is asked to stand up and give a one sentence piece of counsel or advice to the new person who's just out of prison. And if you can imagine with a group of guys like that, and especially with me there, you know that a lot of people don't limit themselves to just one sentence. It would be nice if they limited them themselves to one minute. But some of us went on for five minutes. But you know, but no matter what, it, there's 20 people. And by the way, Tyler Thompson and James Delarado were there with me and, and another person from our congregation, uh, Gary Johnson. We were all there, and, and we went around the room. And let me tell you something. There was, there was something so encouraging and wonderful about hearing all of this counsel being given to this guy. You know what the number one counsel was? Don't be in a hurry. Be patient. Can you imagine being in prison and looking forward to that day? I've walked with Joe Camara for 21 years as he's been in prison serving a 23-year sentence. He gets out in February of 2022. He's counting not the months, not the weeks, not the days. He's got it down to hours. He can tell me how many hours he has. So imagine getting out of prison. Your instinct is going to be to be in a hurry and to be impatient and worry that things aren't happening immediately and you've got plans and goals. The number one counsel given was you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to be patient. That's Jesus' counsel to us too. It's always about perseverance, endurance, and patience. The only thing that he, I would say, the only thing he says, you better hurry up on is come to me. And then slow down. And then slow down. This life, this Christian life is going to be very frustrating to anybody who's in a hurry. Especially if you're in a hurry with Jesus and he doesn't seem to be keeping up with you. It's going to be very frustrating. Jesus calls us to slow down. Because believe it or not, the juice of this life with Jesus is not in the results, but in the journey. And I'll tell you, the results are going to be great. Paul tells us that this weight of glory that we are eventually going to have far outweighs anything that happens down here. Yet, to be with Jesus here also is really the juice of life. He's got the victory won. The results are there for us. But think about this. You and I, most of us, this is our yoke. We're running around. We're doing this and that. We're overcommitted and undersatisfied. Can I at least get a whisper in of an amen on that? Overcommitted and undersatisfied. There's another great t shirt from my fledgling t shirt company. Walk around with a t shirt. Overcommitted and undersatisfied. That's the yoke that we have. The pace of life that most of us run at is a really difficult yoke. But Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is life. Now, here's something else about his yoke his yoke is not mushy and frothy, it's not soft. Jesus is not saying, hey, come to me. Here's where you find the cupcakes and muffins. That's not what he's saying. He's welcoming us into his salvation, his restoration, and wisdom. Salvation, restoration, and wisdom. Those are not soft things, but they're the right things, and they're good things, and that's why they're easy things. So here's the lowdown. The valley of the shadow of death touches us all. There's no escaping it. There's no mitigating it. And yet God provides us with his love and his guidance and his salvation. His protection and his embraceable and accessible yoke. And that yoke, understand, that yoke is Jesus on the cross. It is finished for us. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for the finished work of your son. That we can have life and have it abundantly and that we can have a yoke that finally, at last, can make some sense. And that works for us. It doesn't prevent us from the valleys that we're going to uh, find. But it enables us in those valleys. For your presence, you are with us. And your rod and your staff comfort us. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for your word and its truth. We just pray that we would apply this to our hearts and our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Well, we are gonna have a time of communion, and before we get into that, I have to offer you some very important instruction on these individual communions. If you saw the video from last week, you, you, you know that this thing is not the easiest thing in the world to open. By the time I was done with it, three minutes later, it, the, the wafer was in about 20 pieces. I got like three pieces in my mouth, the rest, anyway, it was a mess. So be very careful, but you take this, On the very top, you can hardly even see it, is a very thin, transparent film that you need to peel off in order to keep the wafer intact. Okay? And then you can eat the wafer, the bread. And then you take the uh, fluorescent purple top, which is much thicker and it's got a little break there, and you pull that off of the juice Be very careful pulling that off. It's kind of like a juice box. No matter how careful you are, it might spill on you, okay? So be very careful pulling that off, and that's where you get at the juice. But we're doing this individually, obviously, for safety. And so um, each of you take one of those, and let me give you the words of institution. It's my privilege to be able to do this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's having dinner with his best friends, the people he's been with, the guys he's walked with for three years. And at one point he takes the bread and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, eat it. And then after they had eaten, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Pour it out for your sin. Do this in remembrance of me. He establishes this Lord's Supper for us, this sacrament, this celebration, and this commitment, this confession of who Jesus is. Paul reminds us later on, he says, as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord and his death until he comes again. So as Tyler plays and sings and even leads, if you want to be led, in one last song, and then he'll give the benediction as we go. Rock
2: of ages Cleft for me, let me hide my. sin could not atone, Thou must save, and Thou
0: alone. Amen. Well, Redemption Arcadia, so thankful that you've been here with us this morning. Would you stand for a benediction? ask you, uh, when leaving, if you would mind leaving out of the doors to the left, not the doors that you came into, but the doors to the left, and if you would do so in a timely manner, we'd be able to clean the sanctuary up for the next service that is coming in. Uh, So as a benediction, would you receive this? It's it's one of Frank's favorites, and uh, we sang these words earlier today, but um, I'll speak them now over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next time.